Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. I'm your host, Cody. Joining me tonight are my co-hosts, Mike. Say hello, Mike. In this universe, I shot him six times. But in an alternate, different universe, I I also shot him six times. Fixed point in time and space is what I'm saying. I mean, there's room for fudging that, because sometimes it looks like seven shots. Sometimes it's maybe like five. He says six. He says six. All because Knumis doesn't know how to count because he's fucking insane. <laughs> doesn't change the fact it's six. It has to die! Uh, also, say hello to my other co-host, Jamie. Hello, Jamie. You know, a lot of uh, fans don't notice this unless they follow us from a really a long way back. But in one of our least popular episodes, it did come to light that I was genetically engineered to be the ultimate third banana on a movie review show backstory that no one will ever find out who it was who released me from that jail cell take that secret to my grave well i mean we kind of we got that footage several years later on the uhd disc i just realized uhd disc is like saying atm machine <laughs> a little bit uh yeah that's unfortunate i have to live with the fact i've said that before uh, i like uh i like dvd video discs <laughs> those are fun just say it 40 times in a row eventually people understand what you mean they're digital you know Mm. digital dvd video discs boy i hate it i just hate it also, I, I like the is... idea that in uh for jamie there's two alternate <laughs> versions of paul rudd <laughs> oh god i'm defeated by paul rudd putting some rocks in a circle oh and, and one you have green blood like a vulcan <laughs> <laughs> nothing says pure evil like green blood we've learned this from evil dead 2 as well and no matter what reality he calls home, Paul Rudd is Paul Rudd. It's very distracting going back to watch Halloween with Paul Rudd, because the whole time you're like, Paul Rudd, why did they put you in this thing? You're trying too hard. It's like you're just praying for him to get out into a good movie, and instead he has to be like, oh, here I am, it's Tommy Doyle. I'm hey, saving folks. a baby. Saving a baby. Introducing my career. Uh, folks, I didn't introduce it, so you couldn't have guessed it, unless you read the title, which oh, hopefully sure. you do before you click things. But... Tonight's episode is uh, a look at the myriad versions of the Halloween franchise and trying to figure out just what exactly the timeline is. And if you were to meet one of those Michael Myerses in a dark hallway, which one you're best off meeting? So I, I think everyone kind of agrees, right? As far as Halloween timelines go, we've got essentially, what, the original sequel timeline with Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 4, Halloween 5, and Halloween 6. Then we have, uh, what, the uh, H20 timeline, let's call it, with Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 20 years later, and then Halloween Resurrection. Now we have the new kind of H40 timeline, wherever you want to call it that. We should agree on names, it's going to get confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Halloween, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and Halloween Ends, that's still in progress. So for all we know, there could be more after Halloween Ends, and that's kind of like the final nightmare. It's just, it doesn't make sense as a title, but they had to throw <laughs> it in there. That's not even getting into the Atkins verse, which just exists as an island out there. Oh yeah, it was out there. You could also, I mean, this one would be more like head cannony, but four is in a way also a reboot. So you could go Halloween one and two as its own universe. You could definitely do that, but I'd say that's head cannon because four 
wants you to acknowledge the events of Halloween 1 and 2. Very much, but so does H2O, I mean. Uh, even, yeah, going well, out, even going outside of direct continuity connections, if you're talking spiritually, uh, Halloween 1, 2, and 4 are a, a self-contained uh, trilogy in and of itself. Then yeah. there's... Then there's the mysticism movies, which are their own entire stripe of Halloween. Even you could, uh, I mean, you could really go down the rabbit hole and Halloween in itself has its own separate continuity. That's just the first film, then just the first two films, then just one, two, four, five, and six, then the H2O timeline. Like you could go completely and like, because of, the, the different uh, thought processes that went into like the making of each one. Halloween is a fascinating constant uh, rebooting of itself, so it keeps creating new timelines. I would say, Mike, your idea definitely works for the Texas Chainsaw Massacre timeline. We'll get into <laughs> oh, that yeah. later, because that's for sure how they're operating. That but one we're Halloween... never going to do an episode on, because Jesus Christ. That's like no, sorting out the demon sequels. <laughs> But for Halloween, I mean, I, I consider, like, the flow of production. So, you know, if they kill off Laurie Strode, that's probably, like, the end of a franchise, and then they have to do a reboot later on. But I also, I kind of have my own maybe too headcanon-y, headcanon-y, maybe not views of the timelines, to go full nerd here. Let's say, for example, the reboot timeline of Rob Zombie's Halloween 2007 and Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 2009. You would think there's two films. The second one starts immediately after the first. How do you end up with multiple timelines from that? <laughs> and I would say the fact that Rob Zombie has released a director's cut for both of those movies and has now made it practically impossible to get like the original theatrical cuts on disc makes it seem like there's multiple flows of that timeline. I'm fascinated by the idea of the hospital sequence at the beginning of Halloween 2 existing in its own like like a corner of the multiverse. <laughs> The horseverse. That is, honestly, I love the hospital scene by itself. When it's revealed to be a dream, the whole movie kind of shifts into a different gear, a much slower gear. And yeah, way death it never really zombie. recovers, in my mind. Plus, no one likes spending 20 minutes on what turns out to be a dream sequence. Like, there's easier ways to show someone's mental state than to involve us in that long of a kind of gotcha moment. I don't like gotcha moments. Yeah, and I, I can kind of see the purpose of it, because they're trying to show, right, Lori's declining mental health. And having the lines between reality and fiction blur for her. So in that scene, it starts off what we have to assume is real of her being taken to the hospital and being cleaned up. And then at a certain point when she she's forced to go back to her room and nap when Michael Myers attacks, that's kind of a nightmare scenario and everything from that point is fake. But it's it's tough to tell in those movies too, just from the endings and the alternate takes of the endings exactly <laughs> what they really want to portray them as. I will still maintain that the hospital sequence in Halloween 2 would have been perfect. If that were the ending of fucking Halloween one. <laughs> I, I agree with your idea, Jamie, that you could really maybe cut out the first hour and so of Halloween one, Rob Zombie's Halloween one. Just throw out all the young Michael stuff, the stuff in the asylum, and just take the direct remake of Halloween and staple that into chunks of Halloween two to make one total narrative. Oh, I've been obsessed with that for years. Like, there's so much of those two movies that actually does work. I feel like s someone out there can just cut the chuffa out and make a good zombie Halloween out of those parts. This, this is something that's interesting and why I do consider, like, the zombie movies is, like, another timeline. 
because of, of the their continuity has nothing to do with the original Halloween. The, well, there is that too, but <laughs> it's it, it's the same. It's the same reason we're like we're doing this entire episode, uh, and like why I originally pitched it is each Halloween timeline is kind of like fascinating in of itself because it tells different versions of similar stories. Like H forty tells kind of a similar story of H twenty of H two O. Yeah. And the and the zombie movies are an interesting microcosm of okay the the other movies with the family stuff built in were it was constant retconning of trying to justify itself so it was in this constant retcon edition mode every single sequel that kind of like kept pushing it backwards so it can like move forward then go backward then move forward so the zombie movies start off with that aspect like okay what if halloween started off with the with the family concept of it all and and also shows why that doesn't really work that well yeah especially if it's the linchpin yeah it's like it under it's kind of i mean not to disparage the movies and the and the people who love them or anything like that but uh, in you know why this kind of breaks michael myers what I find interesting, though, is how, <laughs> as different as these are, because they want to go in different directions because the previous film flopped, so they have to try something new for more monetary gain, the general flow of most of these ends up being pretty similar. Yeah. So I've got a list of the, the movies, the timelines I recognize, and kind of like the high points of how they end up, and let's just run through those quickly here. So in our original sequel timeline of Halloween 1, 2, 4, 5, uh, and 6, you end up with about 43 total kills. Um, and I say about because it's it's often difficult to tell how many people Michael has killed because they'll just kind of go through a room and you'll see a bunch of dead cops. So you kind of be like, I think I can see how many are in here. There's also a lot of uh, implication that he's killing people off screen outside of the first film where we know he only killed like a couple of people. Right. So, and I mean, even uh, the ending of The Curse of Michael Myers ends with Loomis screaming off screen. So that that like... 43 doesn't count Loomis because you have to assume if they made another one Loomis probably would have survived. Well, there is the version where Loomis was possessed by Michael. Oh, I'm getting into that later. Okay. Uh, but also for this timeline too, just to note, we have roughly 43 total kills and 16 of those are off screen, which isn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, but you know a pretty good number of them are off screen so you kind of use your imagination to assume someone's dead or they could always come back if they're a big enough character. But at the end of this timeline, we have to assume that Michael Myers has actually survived because we hear Myers, or, uh, we hear Loomis screaming as he goes to investigate Myers' corpse. Laurie is dead. They killed her off so they could keep moving the franchise forward after they couldn't bring her character back. Uh, Loomis is probably dead unless they wanted to bring him back and uh, recast Donald Pleasance. Our, our new kind of takeover protagonist, Jamie Lloyd, has now been killed. Michael still has uh, a son, nephew out there, though, so he's got family motivation if he needs it. And Tommy Doyle's still alive, so they leave themselves some characters that could be murdered in an additional, like, Halloween 7 if they had done it. And then you look at the producer's cut, which had a huge chunk of it reshot at the end to, well, kind of the other way around. The producer's cut was first, and then they reshot a lot of it for the theatrical because they didn't like the uh, lack of confrontation at the end. Pretty much the same deal there, only except for this one is, uh, it ends with Loomis getting the Curse of Thorn, which is hilarious to me. <laughs> Like, are, are they implying that Loomis is going to be a bad guy in the next one? I want to. I, I wish the writers had explained more. Just like, shuffling barely alive to kill people. Right. 
Why did he just make that? They had to have known, like, this guy's on the way out. Why Why would they even make it where, oh, here's a vital, weird setup? That honestly makes no sense. Can anyone Grasping explain what straws. the fuck is going on? And he's go- he would be conceivably burned that next movie. Again. It's... It's your game, Loomis. What what a weird ending the producer's cut has. We're just here. Uh, here's the uh, the cult of thorn tattoo. It's magic. Uh, it wasn't tattooed on us. We just got it magically. Uh, and uh, apparently, you're in charge of evil now. I don't I don't understand it at all. But I consider that almost a separate timeline because we never got a Halloween Seven. So you could look at the endings of the producer's cut versus the actual theatricals branching areas. Jesus Christ! How many continuities are we up to at this point? I mean, I, I try to ignore the ones where there's like a TV cut of Halloween one as a separate timeline because you can you can mostly ignore that. That's just filler that's out there. It's anything that would really contradict a later film probably needs to be mentioned. And you can't really count like deleted scenes or anything like that because no, then there's like then there's like you know a version of H two O that is in continuity with four, five, and six. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, that that that's something I only found out recently that blew my mind, that Kevin Williamson's original treatment was still going to try to make the, Black, the Cult of Thorn stuff work. Why would you take that concept? Just leave it alone, man. Get out of there. Which would also mean that in that continuity, Lori abandoned her daughter to go into hiding from Michael Myers. Yeah, I, I believe there are still deleted scenes where Jamie Lloyd's mentioned in like uh, one of Lori's classes or something like that. That's for the best. I'm glad we didn't go down that route. But speaking of H20, uh, so that timeline, uh, it's what, four movies? Halloween, Halloween 2, H20, and Resurrection. That one only has 31 total kills, and nine of those are off screen. Ends with Michael Myers still on the loose, because at the end of Resurrection, we see him come out of his body bag and presumably murder the morgue attendant. Only in that version, he's killed Laurie, which he waited several years to do for no reason. Loomis has died. Uh, John Tate is still alive? But it's it's very weird that this movie didn't focus on him in any ways. Michael Myers, after killing his sister, just goes back to his house. So I guess they still have the family connection if they want to do that for future movies, if this one had continued on. There's actually a, a wonderful book out there that goes through all of like the Halloween movies that didn't exist. And uh, boy, John Tate was really not an important part of later sequels had they made them off of this film, which cracks me up. They just totally forget about that character and the whole family deal. Again, amazing considering H20 is all about family. Uh, uh, that's a weird uh, offshoot of the whole fam- the Halloween franchise. This, this constant switching on and off of family being the driving force, like a light switch. <laughs> it, it's like, imagine if throughout the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, they occasionally just decided that dreams weren't really what this series was going to be about. <laughs> Like going back to family, we have got the H40 timeline, which explicitly mentions that, no, 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 Michael Myers and Laurie Strode are not related. However, the family is still the focus here because we get three generation of Strode women basically being forced to confront Michael Myers in the, in the first entry of this new trilogy they're setting up. So it's still about family, even when it's not about family. Uh, that's the weird thing about Halloween. That's even more reinforced now that we're getting into... Uh... A revisitation of a lot of old ideas with Halloween kills. There's this very like Star Wars like rhyming storytelling that echoes throughout all of these different continuities. Almost like a uh, Michael Myers is a full on mythological character, and there there are multiple versions of the same basic story that still hit a lot of the same beats. That's really interesting because that's that's very unique across. For pretty much any movie franchise 
Well, I think whenever you have a giant franchise or an iconic character and the IP won't die, you end up with these kind of weird ghosts that have to run through the series where they're kind of callbacks to continuity that no longer exists. Like in the trailer for Halloween Kills, we get to see three trick-or-treaters that are killed wearing the masks from Halloween 3, which is kind of a neat throwback, but it just feels like all sorts of those moments are littered throughout these movies. Like, okay, it was popular when Michael did the head tilt in the first movie. We don't care about that. Let's let's have him do it again. He's got to. Why? Well, because we saw it before. It's just like the, the writers know it's a legacy sequel, and these things are almost hereditary. <laughs> They're just baked into the, the bones of any script that happens after this point. Halloween's a unique beast as a franchise in that it's kind of in a constant remake state, almost, even in just normal sequels. Like, kind of a Terminator it, problem, right? Yeah, very much so. It, it's it's funny, the you know stuff like um, Friday the 13th feels more different each movie despite being exactly like carbon copies of each other. Like, horny kids show up at Camp Crystal Lake, Jason kills them. But it, it, do, it never relies on like retreading characters or trying to hit nostalgia of the movie that came out like two years earlier where if, where halloween does like it goes over the it continues the same characters it's constantly coming back around like did anybody ask for tommy doyle to suddenly show up in part <laughs> six like it's just it's, it all and, has to connect back to that original incident which is hilarious they mention it in h42 isn't this that big of a deal it's 40 years later michael myers kills a couple Let me check my days. notes. Yeah, in, in uh, Halloween 1, there's five total kills, and most people don't even recognize one of those as being an official kill. Because, like, the mechanic that's killed that Michael takes the, the overalls on, off of, no one seems to count that guy. They just they just count the, the girls that Michael kills in the movie and the guys. What, what, he, like, the teens. What, he, like, had a heart attack? <laughs> <laughs> I was really curious about this. Uh, I was looking at, like, Halloween kill counts to make sure I wasn't too far off base with my own counts, and they mentioned the mechanic was killed by gunfire. <laughs> and I'm like, what? what? I, I didn't see that anywhere. Maybe I'm not paying close enough attention, but they mentioned there were gunshot wounds on the mechanic, and I'm like, I feel like someone's making shit up, or like they pulled something from novelization. I won't hesitate, Loomis. Well, that's the point I wanted to mention, too. Throughout all the movies, one of the binding factors is Michael Myers has only used a gun as a knife. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, he's, he's never shot someone. Michael Myers has never picked up a gun and been, ooh, this is fun. Bang, 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 you're dead. No, at one point, he sits in a chair in the dark with a shotgun to make people think he's uh, just like a cop. And then when they realize it's Michael Myers, he stands up and impales them with the shotgun. Like, he's fucking stabbing them with a sword. That's the only way Michael Myers kills. It's got to be, like, by his hands or he's got to be using a, a knife or bludgeoning instrument. Not not many ranged kills in the Michael Myers uh, repertoire. No. But but that's He's an like up close a, and personal kind of guy. But that's another um like interesting aspect of the different timelines is each one comes with its uh, honestly reinterpretation of Michael though to a degree yeah, as it gets more of the family stuff definitely his the methods and the way he kills does change and his personality kind of changes to because you have to fit into that and the and the cult stuff then you know what it was in just the first film and um age 40 i think but like uh, the the way he kills and the overall like aesthetic of michael myers alters from timeline to timeline like halloween 4 michael myers is probably the closest to halloween 1 outside of age 40 
but you know h2o michael is still different than halloween michael and halloween 2 michael is different than halloween michael and you know halloween 5 and 6 michael is completely different than all the other ones and same thing with like resurrection and it's it's kind of like crazy to me like i i didn't really even hone in on it so much until age 40 and you see oh yeah i forgot michael's supposed to be a dude who kind of enjoys fucking with people like there is like this <laughs> trick or treat aspect to him where he wants to scare the shit out of people and he and he and the randomness is part of it like the unknown randomness like when he doesn't kill the baby in age 40 it's like shit like that where like yeah he was very different whenever he didn't have any modus operandi essentially and it's he was very just a boogeyman fun trying to figure out his motives cuz when they have him act differently than what you think he would logistically do based on past movies that's when it gets fun it adds a wrinkle to the character who again is a mute uh mostly hidden behind a mask so we don't really get to see his emotions most of the time he doesn't even make noises when he's killing unless it's rob zombie's version so the character is really just a shape a cipher and when they make those kind of choices it's exciting as a fan you can take that interpretation whatever direction you want and i should mention too I was really surprised going back. I crammed all the Halloween movies over basically three days. Uh, and I, I watched a majority of them over two, like just like four movies a day. And uh, I would not recommend that. Give a little breathing room between those guys. Godspeed. But you do notice when you watch them back to back to back to back how different each Myers is. And the, uh, the simple fact that I don't even think is necessarily scripting. It's they never really got the same actor movie to movie. No. So in the first one, it's Nick Castle. Who you know puts a very distinct stamp on Michael Myers, like the way he robotically sits up after being attacked, or you know the heavy breathing, all the all the classic iconic parts of Michael Myers are Nick Castle, right? Then in two we have Dick Warlock, who has a different walk than any of the other Myerses. You can identify him immediately from just the way that guy moves his body. I mean, he was like a stunt coordinator, a stunt guy his whole life, so I think he's got a, a different kind of control to him than you typically see in a lot of regular actors walking around. Yeah. But also, they, they add some hilarious twists in there. There's a moment in the hospital where Dick Warlock's version of Michael Myers gets through a glass door by simply walking through it. Like, he just leans his head forward and smashes his way through the wall. He's like a juggernaut in that fucking movie. He just he just goes for it. He makes a straight line, and he just kind of slowly walks towards it. Uh, not the slowest Michael Myers, I would say, though. So his seems very controlled. Yeah. But then, uh, what, Halloween 4... Uh, the the Michael Myers is George P. Wilbur. In Halloween 5, it's Don Shanks, who also played the Man in Black, uh, although you only really see the Man in Black's feet, so I don't know how much that counts as playing him. Wilbur returns in Halloween 6, though, uh, although they got Michael Lerner for the reshoots on that movie. So you, you kind of end up with two different Michael Myerses, which I think you do notice when you're watching that movie, like the, the amount of rage Michael has in scene to scene, I think yeah. it varies a little. Uh, and, it, and every director has a completely different interpretation as well. Oh, for sure. Uh, H20, they got Chris Durand as Michael Myers. Uh, really, I think his his body movement is great as Michael. I, I really like what he did with yeah. Michael Myers. Uh, then it's Brad Laurie in Resurrection. Again, this blows my mind because it's a couple years between movies, sure. But you think you could get a guy to come back and play Michael Myers again. It just <laughs> astounds me they never get the same dude. Until you get to Rob Zombie's Halloween, and then it's Tyler Maine, and Tyler Maine is such a big piece of that character, they couldn't just hire anyone else. Tyler Maine had to be Michael Myers in both films. 
Yeah, and I do have to say, Tyler Maine's physical performance as Michael in those movies is very underrated in the horror community. Like, no matter what you feel about the quality of the movies themselves, Maine fucking brings it as a horror heavy in those two. Yeah, he's putting on a he's putting in a monster performance. Like he's not a stunt guy walking around a Michael Myers mask, which a lot of the other actors did. Essentially, like that's well, that's how they were treated. But his, I mean, the the problem I think people have with his version of Michael Myers is zombie didn't design that guy to be Michael Myers. That was basically a zombie character. <laughs> I think what people love about the original Michael Myers is he, he straddles that line between is this a normal guy or is this some sort of evil boogeyman supernatural threat. Yeah, And part of the fun in the original Halloween is Michael Myers is unmasked and you realize, yeah, this is just a regular ass white dude, like just just some like 20 something kid or whatever, brown hair, no scars, nothing. He's just a lunatic in a mask. Yeah, I, I always uh, love I think it was uh, Carpenter who told the story. It, it was Carpenter or, or Curtis. I can't remember that they're at a screening and went in the moment Michael's unmasked, like people in the audience gasp. As if it's a scare, but it's just because it's so unexpected for him to be the most normal, young-looking person imaginable in that moment. Yeah, it's like an anti-reveal. Yeah, which I think the other movies kind of hung with. I've heard like on the UHD cut of five, you can really see just how normal-ass-looking Michael Myers is because there's not as much like darkness to hide him. <laughs> Someone described him as looking like Justin Long when he comes out of the Mountain Man's cabin after <sighs> the first murder. And maybe the most they do for Michael Myers is uh, they maybe put some burns on his hands after two, you know, to, to give you that idea of continuity to the earlier. Yeah. Movie. Which well, they then they, forget about eventually. Well, didn't they get K&B to do uh, like a full-on, like fully scarred from Halloween 2 Michael for one of the sequels that got completely deleted or like just cast in shadow or something? I wouldn't be surprised. Because it seems like a lot of these movies do want to toy with the idea of Michael Myers not being in a mask. Because there's certain points where it would just be silly for him to have one on. Yeah. You know, like at the start of five where he's been in a coma for a year, like why would he ever have a mask on? So he doesn't. Uh, or like he was in a jail cell, those kind of things. Or when he's escaping uh, the ambulance in part four, although that one they can get away with it because they have him wrapped in bandages still all those years later. Uh, there's a surprising amount of Michael Myers walking around without a mask, which is weird. Cause like from a distance, I didn't think of that. I always thought Michael Myers always has his mask. It's very weird. He doesn't. Then you go back and rewatch all the movies and like, oh yeah, there's a ton of times where he doesn't have a mask. They just don't show him straight up. They, you know, they put him in shadows so the audience can't quite make out that he's maskless. But the characters in film definitely have seen him without a mask. Yeah, you forget like in the first movie, most of the time when he's walking around town and driving and driving around town, mm-hmm. he's maskless. We just, you know, only see his shoulder. Same thing for most of Halloween four, honestly. But in Halloween forty, there's a giant section where he has to kill to get his mask back. So we, we see him, like, you know, standing around watching characters from behind. <laughs> you can just tell, oh, that's a normal dude. Uh, at the start of the asylum, they don't go up face on and show him, but you can see the back of his head, and he looks pretty normal. You get kind of his milky eyes, the only clue that he's been through some shit before. It's super common in all of these movies to just show Michael Myers, but hide it from the audience. Like, he's so disfigured, it's a tease for later, when in reality, it's like, he's so normal, it'd be boring if we showed his face. Yeah. This is why I like the way that H40 played it. Or you you get a sense of what he looks like because yeah it's not really a mystery as what Michael looks like we've seen him and mm-hmm. there's nothing particularly special about what he looks like but you don't really want to see Michael yeah like in that universe it's been forty years or whatever since he's been arrested so there's probably like giant blown up 
pictures of him in a police line like he's Charles Manson or something. You know, everyone knows what he looks like. So it, it would make sense. The characters in the film know exactly what's going on. But the audience doesn't want to see that. They don't want to see some six-year-old, you know, balding guy with a scar for an eye. <laughs> like, eh, it's not that exciting. It's more exciting when he's got the mask. Yeah, and in the and that's when the mask functions more of how it was originally supposed to in the in the first film, which is just an extension of him. It's that you know cold blankness of nothing. Where if you saw his face, even if he had no expression, it, it just wouldn't get it across. Like that's you know that's like him turned inside out is like the purpose of the mask. One thing I should mention too that's almost startling, kind of going back to that idea of one when you see Michael Myers and he's a normal dude. In Rob Zombie's Halloween 2, Michael Myers is just walking around for a couple years without the mask on. He only puts it on when he's decided he is going to kill. So there will be scenes where we full-on see Tyler Mayne walking around in a giant beard. And it's kind of shocking for how willing Zombie is to just show Michael Myers' face up like a normal person. You know, it's one of those, there's obviously nothing scary about the face. He's just a very large bearded man. But the fact that he's been hidden behind that decaying mask for both movies makes it seem like, oh shit, what? That's not how this is supposed to work. For better or for worse, you should respect Zombie for being the one to go, let's do things like, let's not retread the same type of territory <laughs> exactly the same. Like, we can change things up a little bit if we're in a new new universe, essentially. Zombie's doing his own thing. I respect that. Uh, and I think that's why people love Halloween 2, because it very much feels like Rob Zombie's own film that happens to start a very burly killer in the Halloween mask. Yeah. But even the Halloween mask is, at that point, you know, it's not white anymore. It's all gray. It's all scarred up. Uh, half of the face is torn away because someone grabs a chunk of it when Michael is attacking her. I love so that Halloween mask, though. It's super different than all the other masks and the intention most of the masks had. But there's something exciting about seeing the Myers mask fucked up. I don't know what it is, but I always love it when there's damage to the mask. It's like, uh, it's, it reminds me of like Batman Returns when he's got the mask off at the end. Like, oh, my God, there's a person <laughs> underneath the rubber. Well, well again, that's one of the recurring themes in this series across all timelines is the passing the noticeable passing of time and the decay that springs from that is practically a character in this franchise like it's and more so than any other horror series like friday the 13th is very 80s but that series isn't specifically tied to the the decade Whereas I think there's something about the fact that Halloween, the original Halloween is such a distinctly late 70s movie that anything that's uh, commenting on that original or spinning off from that original, the fact that that original takes place in such a completely different era, like that, it, even if you're not just, even if you're not trying to do that with the narrative, you have to comment on the passage of time a little bit. Well, each one does. Each Halloween movie always has to tell you like, Five years later, or, you know, mention when the original events happened. They're, they're all very focused on setting up an actual timeline and trying to tell you that things are changing from that point. Yeah, which is fascinating because we've had 40 years of those movies going through and adjusting. Whereas I, I would say I have no idea what the actual timeline is for the Friday the 13th films. Yeah, there's no story of Camp Crystal Lake, the community that you can uh, you can watch uh unfold yet with halloween there's always some kind of factor michael is getting older haddonfield is getting older and changing you're watching generations of characters grow up even and even if something as simple as just the mask degrading like in in zombies version where the mask is specifically something from michael's childhood 
that's waiting for him whenever he resumes his killing spree. And I do like uh, Loomis has a very specific line in the first movie where after he escapes, he accuses, you know, the doctors of fucking up like all you had to do was just leave him in here until he died. <laughs> that's an interesting idea because it's all about that passage of time. Like we know Michael's going to strike each year at a specific time. We're never going to have a Halloween film where he's attacking people on like July 1st or something. So there's a kind of calendar aspect to it. And because the franchise is so long, but we're tied to that original film, they are forced to show the passage of time. And curiously, Michael is essentially the same character throughout 20 years, 40 years. Like even though he's a 67-year-old man in the newest movie, still going to rack up, you know, 18 kills or whatever it is, no problem. It's not like we have moments, old man Logan style, where he's got to like relax his joints or something. The shape is monumental. The shape but, is monumental. <laughs> but that that's what's... Um... That's what's both kind of weird about the family like timelines is throughout all of them in a really great way. The events of the first film and Michael Myers becomes a like spooky ghost story. Like it's the it's the tale of of what happened one Halloween night. You know he becomes a legend. But it's interesting that in the family timelines when they add this wrinkle that. You know, he's going after his sister, he's going after his niece, and there's the thorn stuff, and there's a whole other purpose, like familial purpose to it all. They're still retaining that, despite those two things shouldn't really be able to go together. Like, everybody else is just in the way of this thing with his family at a certain point, which should take away from the legend, but they keep kind of going with, yeah, you know, 10 years ago when this happened, or blah, blah, blah. And it's really only... And that's why I think it's good that H2O kind of ignored that for the most part. Like, we know Halloween happened, but it's not, it, it, because it's taken out of Haddonfield and no one really so much talks about it, it removes that legend aspect and they actually are able to play up, I think, the familial aspect in a stronger way. If you notice in H2O, they really hammer in brother. Brother, brother, brother. It's it's yeah. it, it's you. They play him far less as the shape and more more as Lori's brother. And on that end too, they abandon the idea of it being a local legend boogeyman stereotypical killer and make it more uh, lingering trauma for for Lori. You know, that's the movie that kind of hints that she's got a drinking problem and a lot of control issues over John. So by making it a deal where she's the only one who cares about it. That feels more true, right? Because sometimes the worst thing in your life will happen and everyone around you goes, I, I don't understand what you're going through. That's never happened to me. Or I kind of get it, but not really. I don't feel what you feel. And I, I think that's probably pretty close to what the reality of a Michael Myers attack would be. You know, if there was a crazy man who killed five people, obviously it's horrible. But if you weren't directly involved in that mayhem, if you were like 10 towns over or something, it would just be something interesting you hear on the news and not something you're actually invested in or give a shit about or impacted by. But if you were the brother of someone who got killed in that kind of massacre, how would you ever let that go? What's great about whenever she she reveals uh, her past, it's not, you no, know, someone doesn't go, you mean Michael Myers? It's like, there's no blip. It's just like, yeah, my, my brother killed, like tried to kill me and all my friend and killed my friends. 20 years ago you know it, it no one's going like holy shit and you know the monster michael myers like he's just nothing like he came and went that was a part i really enjoyed about halloween 40 uh halloween returns what they should really call that something besides halloween we can't have halloween then halloween it should have been halloween, halloween returns halloween and we all know it yeah uh ridiculous the fans should just take that and rename it 
uh, it's a big part of that movie that, you know, the characters kind of shrug it off. Even Laurie's own granddaughter is like, okay, watch Michael go to the new facility and then forget about it. She's unable to. Laurie's just been trapped by this whole thing her entire life, terrified of it. But even her own family doesn't understand the trauma. They're like, whatever, you, why can't you get over it? It's a couple of people that was 40 years ago. Just move on already. So I, I love that as kind of a driving force for the, the new series. I'm very interested to see what they do with it in the two remaining films. Yeah. H2O and H40 both tackle PTSD in very different but equally fascinating ways. Where there's more... H2O is more about like a cathartic release because of the familial aspect, while H40 is really based around, around trauma. Yeah. And, and Michael is now a symbol for for trauma, generational trauma, uh, past trauma. Um, instead well, they of use Michael in different with... ways for each timeline, right? Yeah. So in the sequel timeline, specifically Halloween 1, he's the shape. You know, he, he's not really explained. He is the boogeyman. He just pops up to kill and scare. And you get that in two quite a bit, although they had the family connection. So all of a sudden, it just seems like there's there's something driving him. And he's maybe supernatural because he gets shot down plenty of times, gets back up. And the whole Solway thing on the blackboard, which, yeah, who knows? But the, that, knows? Was, that was just Carpenter throwing shit at a wall. Uh, yeah, I always heard that was just to give Loomis more stuff to do. So he didn't have to go right to the hospital. Like he could be investigating. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, like uh, the recent uh, Joe Bob special hit and he postulated pretty much like Loomis's role kept getting better. And I never really thought about it, but it's true. It's just because to justify like the mo the sequels having to justify themselves, they kept having to add stuff and you need someone to add the stuff. So Loomis needed needed to be essentially like the mic piece for Michael to say things and give give continually added exposition that's bullshit together at the last minute. So you it's get Michael's shit like man. Sam Hain. Yeah. But that's he's, that's he's, really he's uh, Sherry Moon Zombie's role, essentially, in Halloween 2. You know, as the ghostly mother figure, she appears to both Lori and Michael. And she she just says what we want to believe Michael is thinking, right? There, there's a moment where Michael sees a billboard for Loomis promoting his book about him. And Cherry Moon Zombie basically steps up and says, you know, this man's profiting from our, our tragedy, which is very weird because uh, she's just a mental projection of Myers. This one's pretty sticky. I'm not quite sure. It's how an this interesting works. way to add. She's, she's talking for Myers to the yeah. audience, essentially, because Myers doesn't talk. This one just gets confusing, though, because like she's projected out as like a figment of his imagination. But Lori has the same figment of her <laughs> imagination. It's so weird. it's either a shared dream, shared delusion, a symbolic way of saying they're both mentally ill <laughs> in similar ways. I love like her, Ritzer. Cody. I don't know if you know this. <laughs> right. um, but, it, but if you go back to the first Halloween, and to a lesser extent, Halloween 2, Loomis is pretty much trying to get it across that there is no inner monologue to Michael. Like, Be that's real. what his, like, his explanations are very vague and just really getting across that he's just an animal he's he's nothing he's just evil but as you get into the sequels loomis is being that mouthpiece and starting to project thing like thought processes onto michael and that completely changes the character yeah because we never have michael sit down and explain exactly what he's doing or why he's doing this instead of that so if the guy who knows him the best says it kind of have to take his word but for the sequel timeline to, to get back to the original point left quite a while ago 
<laughs> we start off with Myers being kind of a, a borderline mythological boogeyman figure. And then by the end, he's a member of a cult who's cursed. Uh, and four, five, and six really are of the same ilk, I would say, where they, they really kind of start leaning into family supernatural stuff with Myers. So he ends up being a more traditional slasher boogeyman, I, I would say, by the end of those films. But you jump to the H20 timeline, you know, and that he starts off, it's Halloween, one against the base. So he's the shape. Then for H20, he just shows up, but he's fairly human. And they kind of demystify him in parts. When he pulls like a disappearing act trying to attack Laurie, the camera actually cuts to show him standing on top of a bunch of tables. And that's how he disappeared. He just exited her viewpoint. You know, yeah. he's not Ooh, doing anything Sneaky Michael. Exactly. Yeah. He was just, oh, I'll, let me, let me just move a little to the left. Uh, Resurrection really kind of dumps this because Myers gets like knocked out of windows. He gets shot. He gets electrocuted and all sorts He's of stuff. He's full on Jason. Yeah. But at the end, he comes back from being clearly murdered 10 times over. So Resurrection is, had it been popular, I'm sure that would have been the start of a new wave of Myers where he is basically just an unstoppable zombie killer. But before that, it was something much more human. He's a stranger's kind of slasher. Then he gets the age 40 timeline. Still in progress, so things definitely can change. I mean, Halloween Kills is supposed to have a giant body count, so he might just be a kind of Terminator here. But I love, absolutely love what they did with the character in the 2018 version of Halloween, where he is an old guy, and they demystify him, but they also give him supernatural aspects at the same time. So they straddle that line by kind of stretching both directions. Uh, there's one kill where Michael Myers is standing in a yard, and it seems like he's somehow controlling the motion sensors that turn the lights on. So just little things like that, like, okay, maybe he's so still the lights don't turn on. Or he somehow his evil presence is enough to, like, cloud him in darkness right before he strikes. And, and it's a great thing where if someone were to, like, in-universe retell that story, they would telephone it. And it would go from there being, you know, just this light and he moves whenever it's off to him having super, like, moving at supernatural speeds or, like, him appearing in different places. Like, it adds to that like campfire ghost story thing of michael even though he is just human yeah and even when he takes damage like at the start before he even has his mask uh aaron the podcaster strikes him in the face with a crowbar i've never been hit with a crowbar but i'm pretty sure if that happened to me that would probably break several bones in my face like your orbital socket would just shatter and you, you would probably make a noise but at age 40 myers is again slightly pulled in the supernatural angle so he kind of shrugs it off and just immediately goes back to beating aaron to death I have I think, moments like that where, like, he gets shot and he kind of staggers for a minute and then he keeps moving and never, like, ha expresses any kind of inability to use his arm, even though Laurie shot him clean through the shoulder. Stuff like uh, that. He takes damage. Sometimes he shows it. Sometimes he bleeds. It's it's scene by scene different, which you could call inconsistent. But I, I like that they're, like Mike said, you could rush him on this and show it from different <laughs> viewpoints and see it in different ways where it's a human who is just very lucky and struggling through things or some sort of actual boogeyman who can't be stopped well i think that's the genius sleight of hand that green does in that movie he sells you so hard uh in the in the presentation of michael that he is just a man he's just a really jacked old dude he's just mortal so that whenever michael does do all these extraordinary inhuman things later it's all the more impressive because you're not just seeing Jason do zombie shit. You're seeing an ordinary guy who through sheer force of malevolence has become superhuman. Yeah, that, that, that's I think the, the main thing with 
um, like Halloween one and, and and Halloween forty with Michael is its sheer force of will. Like it it gives him the supernatural aspect that yeah it does stretch reality, but it, and it and it it leaves you questioning and, and gives this mystique, but it is this force of malevolent will that Michael has. Like that is evil. Like he, the way he does shrug this off just to keep pushing forward, just to keep killing for no reason whatsoever. <laughs> also interesting in 40 is the fact that we have a, what appears to be a Dr. Loomis replacement in Dr. Sartain, but that guy turns out to just be a lunatic himself who's obsessed with Michael. So he's again, the kind of the mouthpiece for Myers. Like he explains all the stuff about him, but you have to take that with a grain of salt because this guy's clearly fucking nuts as well. And Zartain so, became like, uh, psychotically obsessed with Michael because there was nothing to explain. Like he couldn't, he was the, he was the Loomis that broke. Like, I mean, Zartan doesn't work in the movie, but is a fascinating fucking concept on its own. That could have been its own movie. It's the idea of this doctor that was not able to, you know, Loomis looked into the abyss and was able to turn away while Zartan just didn't understand the abyss and wanted to so fucking badly. Like, he unleashes Michael because he just hopes to get something out of it. Like, there has to be some rhyme or reason to Michael, but he's beyond any rational understanding. And that's another interesting bit of rhyming storytelling, where across every continuity now, there is at least one instance of Michael influencing the psychology of another, whether through you know, purely psychological or through mystical means. like. That even in this uh, far more grounded uh, new uh, a new series of movies, we still have that idea that there's something about Michael that's contagious. It's almost Lovecraftian. Uh, that opening scene in the uh, uh, mental institute, the podcasters pull out Michael's mask and he doesn't really turn around to acknowledge it, but he kind of turns his head like he knows it's there. Never says a word, but everyone else at the asylum, like the dogs start barking, the other inmates start hooting and hollering. It does give you that impression that Michael is somehow influencing the people around him. They can pick these things up. You know, that old horror trope that the animals know when evil's around, even if people don't. But again, the fun part is you could just go, yeah, it's a, it's a bunch of people in an insane asylum acting out because there's strangers there. Like there's a perfectly logical explanation. Or you could go, yeah, there's something supernatural happening under the hood of this car. It's uh, it's like the Bible. You can, uh, you can <laughs> find anything you want in there. As long as we're uh, talking about Dr. Sartain, though, I just want to mention, I do kind of enjoy his psychobabble and the ideas he throws out there about Michael's motivations. Oh, yeah. He mentions uh, the idea that there's a predator-prey thing going on with Michael and that he only exists right now because he has to prey to hunt down unfinished business and his murders. And he suggests that Laurie Strode might be alive for the same reason. She's only alive because she knows the predator's still out there. If she didn't have that driving her, she would have you know, drank herself to death or something. Interesting idea. Never necessarily proven by the movie, especially since Myers has to literally be driven to Lori's house before he interacts with her. <laughs> I mean, she like she attacks him. She attacks him in different points, too. But he's like, nope, I'm getting out of here. It doesn't feel like he's focused on trying to get to her because that's just another victim he doesn't necessarily recognize. But Sartain's idea is I got to put these two together and see what happens. And for Lori, she definitely thinks that Michael is coming after. Her. She spent her whole life preparing for this. And she even says to Hawkins. You know, Michael is after me. Michael is going to finish the job. So from her point of view, she agrees. She thinks Myers is all about her the way she thinks about him. And 
again, it might just be characters projecting onto Michael Myers because he doesn't seem to give a shit in the end about Laurie Strode until she's in his face. Or if we're going with uh, more Dr. Sartain gobbledygook, he throws out the idea that there's a thrill and a fear kind of response, and he wonders how Michael's killing impacts Michael. A question that doesn't really matter because Michael's just going to keep on killing, right? So who cares if it makes him sad or happy? But we, we kind of get a fun reversal of Michael's fate in the first film where he knocks Lori out of her house, but then when he looks down to make sure she's dead, she's gone. So if you really wanted to make a stretch, you could have an interpretation of the film where you think that Myers is so afraid that he's got unfinished business that he has to keep killing until eventually he takes care of everyone that could do him in. There is something I think people overlook about like that ending sequence where there is a role reversal between Laurie and Michael is the idea of Laurie putting fear into Michael, something he doesn't ever experience. I will say, and this is probably my favorite, like 30 seconds in movie history, uh, horror history. In the film, there's the moment where uh, Karen Strode is in the basement at uh, Laurie's house and she sees her old childhood gun on the wall. <laughs> the music starts doing like the cool guitar things. She realizes she's going to have to take this gun to defend herself. She picks up the rifle, says she can't take the shot. She's too scared, and she apologizes. So Michael knows his moment of weakness, so he enters frame. Karen pulls up the gun and just aces him in the face, because, you know, it was all an act. Fucking fantastic. And before Myers even has time to hit the floor, fucking Laurie Strode appears out of the shadows after disappearing in the previous scene from getting knocked out of a window and does the happy halloween michael before striking him with a knife like jesus christ that that like one two combo right there fucking chef kiss oh so the music good. and everything coming together at that moment oh my it's god fantastic Trigger, that, that treat, little uh that section right there absolutely i lose it every time i love it so much it, it emotionally hits me so strong i can forgive any flaw in the movie and once again humanizes michael in a way like he waited for okay it's safe she's not gonna shoot me and then, you know, gets gets his ass beat. I think there are hints in H40 about Michael's kind of cunning and how he selects victims. There, there's one part where, you know, he's just going through the neighborhood killing people, apparently indiscriminately. But we see he kills the first old woman because he's after a weapon. And so he takes the knife that he wants and then he goes to another house. And we spend a couple of seconds focusing on a couple where they're trying to get to their car. But the, the, the guy has forgotten like a stethoscope for his doctor's costume. So he has to run back in the house. And it looks like My uh, Myers is targeting them. Only the husband comes back out and is like, oh, it was my pocket the whole time. We don't need anything else to sleep. And as soon as they're getting in the car, Miles just turns. I keep saying Miles. Michael Myers turns and goes towards another house. And the woman is taking a phone call. If you have the subtitles on, it sounds like she's been told that Michael Myers has escaped. Because she said, oh, yeah, I'll lock all the doors. So-and-so is still out there trick-or-treating or, or you know, something along those lines. Oh, thanks for letting me know. She, she's basically implying that someone has called her to leak the gossip that Myers is loose. Myers is apparently hearing this conversation like us from the other side of the door. He then goes around the back of the house, into the house, and stabs that woman to death. So it's an interesting choice to give the character where it feels like, oh, someone knows about me. I, uh, they're afraid I should go kill that person. Because Myers in this version is very much about staring the piss out of people when he can. Very much, was, which was what Myers was about in the, in the first film as well. That's why that entire sequence in H40 is maybe one of my favorite in the entire franchise. Oh, is there's just, why them and not them? Like, just seeing, like, there's no rhyme or reason. Like, he's passing up certain houses. He's, walk, he's going after some people and passing by others. Like, there's no, there's no rhythm to what he's doing. It's all very random. And, and 
But it's not like he ever stops to check his watch and pretend like, oh, I got to go the other direction. Like he's moving confidently the whole time. He never yeah. stutters. He's like, uh, left, right, up, down, kill. Like there's a thought process, but there's it doesn't make any sense to us. Well, it's and easy he's to for- like a shark it's moving. It's easy to forget with all the familial stuff that was added later. In that original movie, Laurie ends up with Judith Myers' tombstone in her bed for no fucking reason other than Michael thought that that would be a funny thing to do. Yeah, he right? hides like, bodies to scare people. Yeah, he puts on the, the Bob costume essentially just to fuck with someone before strangling them. Yeah. Just just like for kicks. And Halloween 6. In Halloween okay. 6, he pretends to be that lady's girlfriend for an afternoon. And doesn't even kill her. He doesn't kill her then. Like, he just drives her around and acts like an asshole to her. And then murders her later in the night. Was that like some kind of seven thing for Michael? Like, I wanted to live the life of a decent man, detective. (laughs) Or even in H40, one of the most big head scratchers for me. So Myers has been put into the car by Sartain after being rammed by Hawkins. He's unconscious. But uh, Allison is, is in the back of the car with him. And defenseless, she's just trapped in there by Sartain, and eventually Michael wakes up, and instead of killing the defenseless girl next to him, he immediately smashes through the front of the car to knock Sartain out and crash the vehicle. Like, he doesn't even hesitate, like, oh, praise being offered to me? Nope, I got my own plans. Fucks that guy up. Ignores her completely. She runs, I also, like, runs off into the woods to go to the third act. And at that point, Michael Myers just starts killing cops because they're coming to investigate the scene, he goes off on a totally different adventure. Michael doesn't need your table scraps. Well, that's what's interesting. Um, and this could be like total like projecting and, and probably is like onto his thought process. But Michael goes after Michael picks the prey. Michael goes after the prey, even though he was chasing her. He wakes up. She's essentially been given to him to kill. And he doesn't have any interest in that. Like, no, I I have to chase her, find her and then kill her. Like you, like you're just, and the fact it's Zartain, his doctor, probably like kind of infuriates him in some way, and he immediately goes after Zartain. Yeah, he doesn't even hesitate. He wakes up and just starts smashing through like the police safety glass in the back of the car. So I love that. It's it's one of those deals where you could sit and argue back and forth all day. Like, why the fuck did that guy do it? And you always have the background of, well, he's either the boogeyman or a crazy person, and either one of those should be inscrutable to the audience. Yeah, and, and as uh, a horror thing, it's way scarier when you don't understand what the killer's motivation is necessarily going to be. Like he apparently has his own thought process. I don't know what it is. That's terrifying. I don't. I don't know how to be safe if I can't predict his actions. That's the brilliance of Carpenter's original concept of the shape and why he's so unique among slashers. And it's nice to see him get back there now with the with the reboot timeline, going back to just being one. Fuck it, Halloween returns and then Halloween uh, kills and <laughs> Halloween ends. Is it gets back to that that unknowing Michael that is really fucking terrifying. Like there is outside of him being difficult to kill or unkillable or or whatever else, he is a supernatural unknown despite being just a man. Like you cannot understand what Michael's thinking. He is just the shape. He there is no such thing as Michael Myers. He is the shape. He is just evil. He is literally the boogeyman. I can't wait till I see Halloween Kills tomorrow. And uh, 15 minutes in the movie, Michael just takes off his mask and sits down and like has a fun family rap about why he kills. He's played by Dave Batista. <laughs> Here's the whole plot, kids. Let me tell you. He eats cereal. <laughs> Get it? Boy, I'm sick of eating these dogs. 
Am I right, folks? It's a living. I don't know why he's turning into a dinosaur from the Flintstones, <laughs> but to me, that's that's what Halloween he is. gives up. Halloween sells out. <laughs> Halloween, Halloween gives up. That was the subtitle for sex. <laughs> Halloween goes Hawaiian. Halloween sucks. Directed by David Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> that's when they bring back the cult of thorn shit. That's we, when, I, uh, I, 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 I had thought they had filmed Halloween kills and ends at the same time so oh, i was very surprised I? to find out that they're like oh no we just finished the script like jesus really this comes out like in a year <laughs> uh-huh that's what you thought of before COVID. i think they're still aiming for 2022 aren't they or is it has that been bumped to 2023 i'm sure it's been bumped to 2023 at this point I was gonna say, i'm sure the turnaround is fairly quick because you don't need too many cgi effects that take months of drawing i know kills films super fucking fast yeah, I, I feel like you could probably make a, a you know a fifteen million dollars slasher for pretty quick. Who knows? I'll, I'll have to. Blumhouse has quick turnarounds for all their movies, actually. Yeah, I'm just if Halloween Kills ends on a goddamn cliffhanger, I have to wait two years to find out the resolution. Oh man, Myers! Spoilers: Michael won't really be dead at the end. I, I've got that much figured out. We assume it's going to end on like a freeze frame of him trying to stab through the camera. Oh, he's in our world now. <laughs> Uh, I, I like that. I like that version. We get no new nightmare with it, but for Michael. Halloween ascends. It's a crossover with the final girls. I do love H20 really was trying to cash in on some of the meta aspects that Scream brought into the game. You know, the late 90s slashers. But because it's Michael Myers, like, how do you make that work? You can do it for a character like Freddy or something that is inherent in, as Scream where it's all about movie fans. But how do you make a fucking slasher where a guy has essentially... A personality you can read in any direction, a meta character. Like you have to be able to understand and know the text as an audience to be able to appreciate a meta version of it. And the whole idea, again, of Michael Myers being scary is he has to be confusing. <laughs> so it's beautiful that they tried it, but I don't think it ever quite came to fruition the way they were expecting. To, to answer your question, I just want to preface first by saying I love H2O, but to properly answer your question, I'm just going to say uh, you don't. That, that you can't do that. <laughs> Doesn't work. Now I'm just imagining Donald Pleasance walking out at a party and being like, Children, children, listen. There are certain rules you must follow to survive a Halloween night. <laughs> I mean, they they kind of bridge on that in, in very light ways. Because in H20, we have a moment at the start of the film where, uh, I'm forgetting the character's name, the nurse's house is broken into. And instead of immediately going in and investigating everything she notices there's something wrong with the house and just leaves she just runs out of the house in the opposite <laughs> direction and goes to the neighbors to get help like nope fuck this i've seen movies where this happens i'm not i'm not gonna die that way it's more of a nod to the audience because she doesn't it's, explicitly it's, say it's a movie it's deal. fucking around with expectations correct yeah but then it pulls pretty much the movie you expect where michael still kills everyone from that scene <laughs> Uh, just to talk for a moment like about something we were talking about earlier as uh the nurse thing reminded me again like Halloween is the only series where they're like, you know what? Let's check in with the nurse 20, uh, 20 years later and see what's up to like, you, you don't see random side characters from Nightmare on Elm Street movies popping in five movies later to, to see what happened to their life. Like you, you don't see random counselors from uh, Friday the 13th uh, showing up telling you uh, how Jason touched their lives. 
Imagine there's a new Friday movie, like the 13th Friday movie finally comes out after 10 billion years, and they bring Crazy Ralph back. <laughs> Not even like Thomas Jar... They don't, they don't bring anyone you'd expect. None of the characters like who's been in two movies. They just find the most obscure guy who's like in the background eating a hot dog from a scene or something. Forrest Whitaker shows up as Reckless. <laughs> All the Tommy Jarvises come back. So one thing I want to point out about uh, diverging timelines, if you go to the original Halloween, we already kind of covered the kill count at being like five plus a dog. Um, and one of the kills kind of gets forgotten because it's the mechanic no one ever cares about. You, you jump to Halloween 20 years later, and they wanted to replicate that idea of Myers being more limited in his kills as being more about you know the tension, the stalking, all that kind of shit. Halloween 20 has six kills, and three of them are off screen. And three of those kills are in the opening scene, essentially, of the movie because it's the nurse... And the two uh, hockey-loving neighbors. Like, that's an incredibly low body count that's more in line with a 1970s slasher than something that came out in 1990 where we, we were expecting, you know, a little more after the glut of all the kills from the 80s films. Then you jump into what is essentially, uh, let's back it up. Let's go to Rob Zombie's version of Halloween, which I don't think anyone should be surprised has a lot of kills. But in Rob Zombie's remake, there's about 18 kills in that movie. Uh, depending on if you're watching the unrated cut or the theatrical cut, because the, the unrated adds a couple of extra deaths in the prison escape scene. None of those are even off screen. So the difference between the 1990s version of Myers killing a handful of people to 2007 is a lot. And then you jump into the H40 version, which is trying to harken back to that original feel of Halloween. That one still has like 16 kills and seven are off screen. Well, it's fascinating going through the series and seeing each era of horror's mores towards kill counts and gore reflected in that Halloween. Like, there's a flavor of Halloween for every, like, flavor of slasher movie throughout the years. Well, going off of that, Halloween used to pretty regularly have some nudity and some sex scenes. H40 has a scene where a character says, you're going to get dry fucked tonight, and they're making out with their clothes on. <laughs> Well, Halloween was never really a TNA franchise like uh, like Friday the 13th or uh, even a lot of the later Freddies were. Like, there's some, some fucking in the first movie that's fairly dispassionate, and there's uh, an occasional tit here and there. But oh, that, you like what you see? What's the matter? Got your ghost? That that's pretty yeah. explicit. I think they're going for a reaction there. That's that's you know. TNA. Honestly, the nudity in Halloween two almost seemed to rub people the wrong way. Like it just seemed out of balance with Halloween, despite their, for the most part, being nudity in Halloween. Halloween would have kind of felt natural because it's just about teenagers fucking around on a holiday, literally fucking. Yeah. Halloween too, it's very weird. Like, hey, we're in a hospital overnight. Uh, People fucking hospitals, right? It's, it's very gratuitous. It's very Friday the 13th and it doesn't feel imbal in balance with, with everything. Well, that's one of the, I mean, there's so much glaringly wrong with Halloween Resurrection, but the weirdest takeaway from that is how horny it is. It feels very off for Halloween. Even, like, too much cursing occasionally feels weird in Halloween. Like, it's, Well, it's, this is the zombie version, and it's like, if there's no one cursing, it feels out of place. Well, yeah. But it, it is odd that they're, for Halloween, they're, they're like, there are more... Uh, societal mores at play for like the tone where it does feel like it shouldn't get too skeevy except in the kill department for the most part well that is the original direction for like Halloween 1 
they didn't want there to be a ton of gore. And most of the kills are, are fairly tame. I mean, we see people strangled, we th see a throat slit, that kind of stuff, but it's not a ton of spurting blood everywhere. Obviously, this changes in part two where they, they knew they had they to go super out better. There. Yeah, they had to keep up with the Joneses because it's been several years since they'd made a Halloween film and everything else had eaten their lunch and it escalated the deal. I find it hilarious, though, that in Halloween 2, Michael Myers' weapon of choice is a scalpel. Like, he picks the smallest knife possible <laughs> to murder people. He does boil a woman alive. True. But he's, like, lifting nurses off the ground after stabbing them with a scalpel, and somehow that kills them. I'm like, dude, you've got, like, an inch of penetration under the skin. I don't think he hit anything vital. He uses needles a lot in that one, too, though, I should say. There are a couple of doctors found dead with needles stuck in their faces. You know, he was gorier, but, gorier, but not, uh, not as creative. Yeah. <laughs> Do you guys think that maybe that's part of the bafflingly never-ending appeal of Halloween as a franchise? The fact that it's, of all the horror series, this is the one that's the closest to family-friendly. Like, there's some, like, there's something that is very universally appealing about Halloween, despite the fact that most of the movies are not great. Like, I think the strength of the first movie and the uh, mostly consistent feel of the sequels have kind of made this franchise uh, the only horror franchise that's truly for everybody. Yeah, because you can show Halloween 1 and Halloween 4 on TV with the cursing cut out, and there's no difference. Oh, I had no idea there were titties in Halloween until I was like 17. <laughs> thing though that really impresses me besides this being something that yeah people have mostly fallen in love with halloween probably because amc fear fest shows it non-stop for the entire month of october but as far as the timeline goes it really is probably a little bit further along the retcon scale than most franchises but i want to take a moment and just discuss how weird it is we have a franchise that's 40 years old like that's astounding that we're still getting regular sequels every couple of years and the fact they haven't had to reboot it like 19 times Compare that to some of the other stuff out there. Like uh, I said, we we're going to mention it, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where apparently every film is a reboot of the franchise. <laughs> we, we currently have eight released Texas Chainsaw flicks. There's a ninth one coming out theoretically soon, whenever Netflix decides to drop it. One, to, to illustrate how crazy this is, in case you've never seen any of these movies or paid attention to them, the movies are named, in this order, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 3, Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Next Generation, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Beginning, Texas Chainsaw 3D, Leatherface, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I hate this, because <laughs> you would look at it and go, oh, Texas Chainsaw 1, 2, 3, Next Generation, 1, 2, 3, 4, they're all sequels. No, that would be incorrect. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the basis for... Pretty much all of them, except for the, the, the remake, the 2003 Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was followed by a prequel. They didn't even do a sequel to that one. They did a prequel to make it more confusing. And then they followed up the prequel to the remake with a direct sequel to the original that ignores the continuity with all the other films. However, since 40 years have passed, they recognize that like 40 years have passed, but not really. The timelines don't add up. Like Michael's got a secret niece who's 20, but should be 40. I said Michael again. Leatherface. Ugh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just looking at it, makes me insane. There's there's a prequel called Leatherface that I think is technically a prequel to the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I believe and, so. And Texas Chainsaw 3D. Yeah, we have reached the point where there are two mutually exclusive Leatherface origin movies. 
like the fucking exorcist it's it's astounding to me so if you want to talk about weird splintered timelines where they could just never figure out what they want to do with the series texas chainsaw really takes the cake well well the the best way to explain it to somebody i feel is to say every sequel is a fan film of the original texas chainsaw massacre including the one toby hooper directed it's all in universe too all in universe fan films I think the important thing to to note here as we kind of uh, approach the end is but Child's Play is perfect. <laughs> Child's Play has never had to falter. They they kept it all together the entire time. Perfectly good. I mean, that's the weird deal with Halloween, though. It's been the same producers, right, throughout the entire thing. Even if John Carpenter and Deborah Hill have sold their stakes and moved off and back onto the project at various points. The Akkad family, huh? You would think, yeah, the Akkads would have kept this together a little tighter. But they're kind of taking, like, the James Bond approach of, like, all right, whatever works this month, uh, one of these is going to stick. They were the ones who were rebooting it most of the time. True. Say nothing of all, like, the reboot scripts that didn't get made. Some of those are fascinating. I I think I was trying to mention it before, but didn't quite get through it. Uh, Taking Shape, I think, two, if I'm remembering right, or maybe it's three, is just an entire book discussing all of the lost sequels that could have happened to the various Halloween movies. And it's amazing to see the stuff they thought about that never came together. Some of them I could really see being films, and some of them are so out there, like, no, I can't believe they even pitched that and got any amount of recognition. Maybe one day we'll do a special episode where we detail some some choice ones. Might be fun. Uh, Myers in space. (laughs) Myers is a ghost who can get 20 feet tall. Technically, actually, he that was movie a... sounded like it would have been fun. I would, I would have watched. It did that sound like it was fun, it. but technically, he was a spirit of evil conjured by the fear of the memory of Michael Myers by the yeah. town. So and they did I go new nightmare with it. They, they were trying to. Yeah, it was, it was a hard concept, I think, for audiences to understand, or it would have been a hard concept to sell, really, especially in the mid '80s. Yeah, but still, a man can dream. One last note that just also fascinates me is I think the biggest aid to continuity and timelines. Just make your movies one after another. Look at the Saw movies. Even if they had to kind of retcon things on the fly, they essentially made seven movies in like seven years. They didn't have time to think too much. They just took the actors they had on, you know, already hired from the previous film and said, okay, your character lived. Great. You're the new main guy. And even when they did sequels like years later, they kept it all in continuity for some reason. All the Saw films play together nicely, which is very odd to me. Like you think they would have just totally rebooted at some point to find a new Jigsaw. Honestly, the, be- disciples. the best thing to do with horror, because we all know how horror sequels are churned out and how horror sequel continuity works, is if you just do it as fast as possible, there's less of a chance of fucking it up. Yeah. Where it's still not going to quite work, but it's going to work better. You'll, you'll live with it. As you're watching these, you're probably not going to watch them back to back like me, so you're not going to notice how weird it is when some of these things change. If you've got like a month or two years between movies, no one's going to give a shit. Just just keep pumping them out. You either have to do it really fast or be like Friday the 13th where you're so fucking casual about your retcons. You're just like, yeah, uh, new Tommy Jarvis this time. Uh, turns out he did not become the new Jason. And he just resurrected Jason, who's now a zombie. We're moving on now. This, this, this movie now <laughs> takes place 15 years into the future. All right. Before we wrap up, I started this, and goddamn it, I took all these notes for a reason. I'm going to finish it. <laughs> Total kill counts for the Halloween series. Just going to lighten and roll them off. These numbers might be wrong, people. Uh, I, I've watched too many movies after work, and I just kind of just scratched them down in a notebook. Preface. I'm probably wrong. Anyway, probably wrong. These are roughly correct. 
Okay, so the sequel timeline, we've got six movies and 43 kills. The H20 timeline, we've got four movies and 31 kills. The H40 timeline so far, two movies, 21 kills. And apparently Halloween Kills is real heavy on them bodies. Our reboot timeline, 32 kills in <laughs> Jesus two Christ. 32. So Fuck if you yeah. were ever going to bump into a Michael Myers, pray it is not the Rob Zombie Mike Michael Myers. Michael Myers is slamming in the back of his Dragula. <laughs> also impressive, Rob Zombie got to the end of his, and he's like, nope, closing this one off. Pretty much all the other Halloween timelines have ended in, with the idea that Michael Myers is still out there, or that all the characters we really care about are dead. His version, fucking Michael Myers is explicitly dead. Loomis is dead. Laurie is in a psych ward or dead, depending on the version you watch. Like, they're all gone. All the, all the characters are dead. They're not coming back unless they really just really lean into the supernatural stuff. And then it's a totally different flavor. And he still wrote scripts to it. And technically, yeah. technically in Halloween 2, Michael did explode. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they kind of brushed that one aside. He's got some And burns. then was vaguely burnt. He had both his eyes shot out, for Christ's sake. Yeah, we just ignore that. Really glance over that. Yeah. Made a cool mask. I, I do like the blood tears, but I digress. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, Michael Myers from Zombies films. We didn't spend a lot of time talking about them. Mostly because he doesn't feel like Michael Myers to me. We get so much of his background, it feels like you kind of understand the psychological reasons for why he does what he does. When he kills, you can definitely hear the anger in, in Tyler Mayne as he grunts and screams, stabbing people. He even, he even says his final words to Loomis, die, before stabbing Loomis to death. We, we have probably <laughs> the best psychological understanding of any Halloween character in Rob Zombie's Michael Myers, which is very weird, but it is out there. So it's an interesting experiment in Michael Myers, I think. It, it, for good or bad, it stands as at least an interesting experiment. <laughs> they should put that on the Blu-ray cover. Please do. Pay me money. An interesting experiment. I wish they would just release the various cuts of the Rob Zombie films. <laughs> I have the Scream Factory Blu-ray set of the Halloween movies, and it only includes uh, the unrated cuts of Halloween and Halloween 2. They they don't have the theatricals. The theatrical cut of Halloween 1 is actually better. No gratuitous rape scene. Yeah, the prison escape is a lot better. Uh, also, Rob Zombie's Halloween is just over two hours, whereas the theatrical cut was like an hour 50. You, you really feel those extra 10 minutes. Oh, also, the Scream Factory set should have the producer's cut of Halloween 6. Not because either version is good, but you might as well have the choice. No, give us the worst possible Michael Myers. All I ask for is just a complete, complete, complete set. We can never have that, can we? They might all be streaming on the same site one day. I think that's about all we can hope for. I mean, the Halloween box set was impressive that, sure, we didn't get special collector's editions of four or five or six or seven. <laughs> most but of the movies, really. Most of them, most of them. But it was cool to have them all together. It was, it was real nice. And uh, sure, now that we have all the, the Blumhouse stuff, it'll probably never happen again. But for a brief moment, we had all the Halloween films together in one house. And I think that's what this podcast originally was about. Isn't it nice that all the movies were essentially together in one box set once upon a time? Friendship. Friendship. Family. Oh, perfect. I didn't know how to end that, but now we've got an actual segue. Folks, if you've enjoyed Box Office Pulp, you can find more of this kind of content at Box Office Pulp. Uh, we have a lot of commentaries in case you want to watch movies along with us. We have episodes like these where we just kind of spitball on topics. We have uh, mini reviews where maybe it's just two of us talking, so you don't have to worry about me 
giving my thoughts and hogging the microphone. Those are nice. We've got all sorts of content. So look us up. We're on iTunes. We're on Stitcher. Uh, we are on Facebook. We are on Twitter at Box Office Pulp. Did I hit them all? Did I get them all? You got, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Amazon Music, things like that, you know. I always blah, blah. forget Amazon Music. Man. It's good. It's a good place to listen listen to us. Also, rate and review us. It helps a lot. Join our own cult of thorn. Goaty's like Dr. Get, Death. Can we get cool tattoos? No one wants that tattoo. I'm tell- No, people love the cult of thorn tattoo. It's very simple, which I think people like. like you definitely, you know what it is as soon as you see it. It's, it's perfect. That's the problem. What? Why is that a problem? I don't want to That's... be associated with the cult of Thorn. Uh... We're not getting into this. What, you don't want to be a member of a cult? Are you too good for being a cult member? I am not too good for being a cult member, I assure Get the you. tattoo, Mike. Prove it. I'd like to be in a better cult. Mm, it sounds like you're thinking on your own instead of being part of the cult, Mike. Well, I'm still shopping for a cult, so I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> Folks, if you have a good cult to sell to Mike, you can contact him at I don't remember what your handle is. At Lucky on. Deck Napier, pitch me on your cult. Pitch Mike on your cult. <laughs> I can't wait. I hope someone actually gets you some good Please suggestions. I, I hope so. Send your cult suggestions care of in prison po- Mike's mind. Folks, that's a wrap. Remember, never drink the Kool-Aid unless it's cherry flavored. Get the hell out of here. And like that, he's gone. Do you think what what flavor did uh, Jones use? Did anyone ever like disclose that Jim Jones like when he murdered everyone at the, the flavor aid? Um, yeah, you know I don't know. I don't know if they ever said what flavor it was. Well, just imagine like that's the last thing you drink. I hopefully it was tasty. Hopefully like the lemon juice kind of like masked the rat poison or whatever it was. Grape. I really hope it's grape. It had to have been grape, right? Because I mean, at the time period it was, there was no way there was like that many flavors. It had to be really basic. Hold on, I bet the internet has this information. It was red, probably. It was just the flavor of red. Especially because it was flavor aid. Grape! It was great. Ah. Yeah. Jonestown Master, large barrels filled with the grape variety, laced with cyanide that, that and tranquilizers. That would have tasted like fucking coffee. Grape. Medicine. Fuck, it's bad enough you're dying for no reason. In but the heat. Just, uh, you're drinking grape fucking flavor aid? Ugh. God. Uh, it's like a sweet tart melting in your mouth. That's or depressing. Mr. Muggs. Jonestown was not Flavortown. I'll tell you that. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. <laughs>